Shortly after 9-11, the Pentagon ordered a top-secret team of American commandos into Afghanistan with a single, simple order. Kill Osama bin Laden. It was America's best chance to eliminate the leader of Al-Qaeda. The inside story of exactly what happened in that mission and how close it came to its objective has never been told until tonight. The man you're about to meet was the officer in command, leading a team from the U.S. Army's mysterious... A unit so secret, it's often said that doesn't exist. But you're about to see operators in action. Why would the mission commander break his silence after seven years? He told us that most everything he's read in the media is wrong, and tonight, he wants to set the record straight. Our job is to go find him, capture and kill him, uh, and we knew the writing on the wall was really to kill him. No one wanted to bring Osama bin Laden back to stand trial in the United States anymore. In 2001, just 10 weeks after 9-11, he was a 37-year-old Army major leading a team of America's most elite commandos. Even now, we can't tell you his name or show you his face. We hired a theatrical makeup artist to take the former officer through a series of transformations to create the man you see now. He calls himself Dalton Fury. He's the author of Kill Bin Laden, a new book out this week. Dalton Fury is used to disguises. In fact, in 2001, his entire team transformed itself in Afghanistan. Everybody has their beard grown. Everybody's wearing local uh, Afghan clothing, sometimes carrying the same weapons as them. The idea was that if this all worked out, Osama bin Laden would be dead, and no one would ever know that it was there. That's right. That's the plan. And that always is when you're talking about it. And there was no mission more important to the United States. We'll smoke him out of his cave. And we'll get him eventually. Using radio intercepts and other intelligence, the CIA pinpointed bin Laden in the mountains near the border of Pakistan. Following the strategy of keeping an Afghan face on the war, Fury's the team joined the CIA and Afghan fighters and piled into pickup trucks. They videotaped their journey to a place called Tora Bora. Fury told us his orders were to kill bin Laden and leave the body with the Afghans. Right here, you're looking at basically the battlefield from the last location that we had firm on uh, Osama bin Laden's location. This ridge line is at about 14,000 feet, and back this way toward me is Pakistan. That's right. On a scale of, say, 1 to 10, 10 being the toughest, how tough a position is this to attack? <laughs> In my experience, it's a 10. They developed an audacious plan to come at bin Laden from the one direction he would never expect. We want to come in on the back door. You were going to come up over the tops of the peaks? That's right. The original plan uh, that we sent up to our higher headquarters first wants to come in over the mountain with oxygen, coming from the Pakistan side, over the mountain to come in and get a drop on the line from behind. Why didn't you do that? Uh, disapproved at some level above us, whether that was uh, Central Command uh, or all the way up to the President of the United States, I'm, I'm not sure. The, the military wouldn't tell us who rejected the plans or why. Fury wasn't happy about it, but he pressed on with the only option he had left, a frontal assault on bin Laden's dug-in al-Qaeda fighters. The, the team had only about 50 men, so the mission would depend on the Afghan militia as guides and muscle. Their leader was a warlord, a self-styled general named Ali. 
Ali told us after about 30 seconds of discussion, he kind of listened to me ramble on, and then the first thing he said was, I don't think you guys can handle it. You can't handle Al-Qaeda in these mountains. Ali, second from the left, met with this CIA officer and accepted millions of dollars in cash from the agency. In short order, his Mujahideen fighters were escorting force into the mountains. Dressed like Afghans, the Americans maneuvered up the mountains, calling in airstrikes on Al-Qaeda. By day, they would advance, but at night, they soon discovered that their Afghan allies went home. Well, I have to assume that if you started up the hills of Tora Bora and, you, and the Mujahideen took territory, they didn't abandon that at night. Oh, yes, they did. They gave it up to the enemy? Absolutely. Mujahideen would go up, get into a skirmish, firefight, lose a guy or two, maybe kill an Al-Qaeda guy or two, and then they leave. It was almost like there was an agreement and understanding between the two forces fighting each other. Almost put on a good show and then leave. Four days after arriving in Tora Bora, Dalton Fury was faced with a fateful command decision. Three of his men were in trouble behind enemy lines and at the same time, the CIA had been listening to bin Laden's radio transmissions and had a breakthrough. And this is where it gets complicated. At about the same time, the CIA, George, comes into our room and he says, guys, I got a location for Osama bin Laden. That's probably the best location that we've had on this Osama bin Laden ever. It was night, so Fury was without his Afghan allies. Still, he managed to rescue his men and then found himself approaching bin Laden's doorstep. We're about 2,000 meters away when we think bin Laden's at still from where we're at. Uh, now we have to make a decision. Fury had two choices, advance his small team with no Afghan support or return to camp and assault in the morning. He was under orders to make the Afghans take the lead and intelligence said there were more than 1,000 hardened fighters protecting bin Laden. You write in the book, my decision to abort that effort to kill or capture bin Laden when we might have been within 2,000 meters of him, about 2,000 yards, still bothers me. It leaves me with a feeling of somehow letting down our nation at a critical time. That's correct. Why do you feel that way? Had we gone up that ridgeline towards that location, Osama bin Laden might have been 500 meters away. We might have run right into him. So there's always that doubt that we might have run into him. We also might have got up there and found nothing. It wasn't worth the risk at that particular moment to go up there and play cowboy. It was better to be cautious, refit, go up there with the entire force the next day and play the battle out as we had planned. In the morning, bin Laden was on the radio. CIA the, and their Afghan allies were listening. How did the Afghans react when they heard from Osama bin Laden on the radio? Osama bin Laden is many a Muslim's hero. These guys, in my opinion, were more in awe of Osama bin Laden than they were willing to kill him. When they heard him talking on the radio, they would gather around the individual that held that handheld transistor, he would hold it up in the air almost as if he didn't want the connection to break. It's almost like they could see the reason line the Samuel Laden happened to be talking from, like they could almost see him and feel his presence. And they just stood there with wide eyes and somewhat in awe that here is the leader of the Jihad, the leader of Al-Qaeda, and they're actually hearing his voice over the radio. And these were the men who were supposed to help you capture or kill him? 
some allies. Some were better than others. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest on with me for this episode, Jamie Caldwell. And uh, Jamie served in the United States military for several years. Uh, we'll walk through a lot of that. Uh, Jamie, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? I appreciate you having me on, man. I'm doing well. You know, as I, as I told you a couple of seconds ago, I just got back from a, a vacation. So I'm just kind of readjusting back into actually doing work and stuff like that and not not doing anything, you know. <laughs> yeah, I hear you, man. You uh yeah, it sounds like you took a multi country trip. That is that is definitely a uh, an awesome vacation, but yeah, it's an adjustment getting back from all the time zones and, and just enjoying yourself. Now you gotta get right back into work. So right. I don't I don't envy that, but I'm glad I'm here. And uh, we're hitting it off together, though. That's, that's pretty cool, man. I appreciate you having me on and and uh, looking forward to this podcast, man. So I would like to start with kind of walking through your career in the military. If we can start, like, from the beginning and, and what motivated you and then sort of walk through it a little bit. Yeah, man. So um, I guess from a young age, you know, just being a kid, you know, growing up in the in the 80s, um, you know, I was, I was into, you know, being outside and being active, like, like all kids, um, you know, that time frame, and, and just always playing like cops and robbers. And, you know, we used to, we used to do BB gun wars, <laughs> um, you know, and then kind of paintball started. So, you know, doing that, but I just, I just was always into that. And my dad was a cop. Um, okay. So I was always around, around that. Um, you know, my, my dad was a cop for about 35 years. So, that, you know, a little bit, I guess, was kind of instilled me in, in that aspect. But um, I knew at a young age that, you know, the military was something that, that I liked. Um, my grandfather had served in the Navy. Uh, he was in World War II uh, as a fighter pilot um, awesome. on aircraft carriers, which was, yeah, pretty cool. Um, so hearing a lot of his stories. And then my other grandfather uh, was in the the Army the air force before it was the air force. So the army air corps, um, oh, wow. you know, he had served. Yeah. So a little bit of a history of it in my family. I had an uncle that was in Vietnam and a great uncle that was in Korea. That was a ranger in Korea, which was really cool. Um, so I, you know, I, I wanted to go into the military. I, I already knew it, uh, going into high school, actually a little short, funny story, but, uh, you know, when I went to go see my, my career, my counselor or whatever, freshman year of high school. And they sort of set you on your path of your classes that you're going to take. I mean, I, he's all about, okay, we're going to get you signed up for your college prep stuff. And I'm like, nah, I was like, I'm not going to college. I was like, I'm going to the military when I get out of high school. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, nope, that, that, that's what I'm going to do. So needless to say, he talked me into just as a backup. I took all my college prep stuff I needed in high school, but um, yeah, my, I'd say right after my 18th birthday, my senior year, I, I enlisted, I did the delayed entry enlisted into the army. And, um, I, I went in with a ranger contracts. I, I, I kind of knew what I wanted. Um, <clears throat> initially I actually wanted to be a seal. Um, you know, at the time that was kind of the most high speed thing that I thought of that was out there. And then lucky for me, my old, one of my older sisters happened to be dating a guy at the time that, um, 
was at first ranger battalion um earlier on in his career and um he kind of sat me down and you know kind of explained to me a little bit more of the you know the different services and and what you know special operations had to offer and certain paths i could take and um you know he sold me on that on the ranger route and then you know and from there i could go sf or go to the unit or you know do whatever i mean it just opened up a lot of doors and I could go in, you know, sign up with a ranger contract. So that's what I did. Um, I signed up, uh, got a ranger contract and initially wanted, um, you know, to go in as an infantry, uh, 11 Bravo with that ranger contract. But when I got some maps and basically, you know, ready to ship out when you're signing your contract stuff, they, you know, it told me it wasn't available, but they had a communications. It was a it was a 31 Charlie single channel radio operator contract, um, with airborne and with Ranger. So I had no idea what that was. And the guy there behind the desk couldn't really tell me much either. So I ended up, uh, asking him, I'm like, Hey, can I make a phone call? And he's like, uh, uh, yeah, I I guess. Um, so I left the room and I called my, my brother-in-law and, um, you know, asked him about it. And he's like, oh, hey, yeah. he goes, no, take it. He's like, you'll you'll actually learn a skill. You know, you'll 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 have something that's useful um, later on in life. So I took that. So that's um, that's how I sort of started out. Uh, I went to Ranger Battalion. I ended up getting the first Ranger Battalion after I made it through Airborne and um, you know Ranger selection. Went to first Ranger Battalion down in Savannah, Georgia. And I was a combo guy there, uh, and a, a few people have seen that and sort of commented on. Uh, some of my posts on Instagram on my one minute out page where I'm in like a class A uniform and you can see the signal crest um, on my class A uniform. Some people have, some people have picked that out. Um, but yeah, I, um, I was a communications guy in a line company in Ranger Battalion. Did that for, I was there for about seven years and then, um, you know, wanted to do more. Uh, I knew that there were other things out there and um, I had actually met the um signal squadron major uh yeah the signal um sergeant major from signal squadron um oh i don't know about six months or so prior to to you know me moving out of ranger battalion and he invited me up to come up you know to the unit as a as a commo guy and it was very interesting because i i I enjoyed the commo stuff i mean i've always been into the technology piece of everything and um i ended up calling him up and, you know, I was looking at coming up there and, and he, he asked me one question. He said, you know, we'd love to have you, um, you know, I think you'd be a great fit up here. But he said, have you ever thought about being an operator? And I said, yeah, I thought about it. And he said, well, do me a favor. He says, go to selection first. He says, just try it. He goes, if it doesn't work out, he's like, I'll be on the board or I'll be there. He says, we'll, we'll grab you up in a heartbeat. And I'm like, all right. So I went through the whole process. You mean to go like if, even if you fail the selection to go as a combo guy? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So he basically said, Hey, we'd love to take you as a combo guy up here as a support guy. But he said, if you even think, you know, or thought about, you know, wanting to be an operator, you know, just do me a favor and, and just go do that. And, and his reasoning was, was solid. And it was, it was because if I even had that thought in the back of my mind, when I got up there as a support guy and saw that, you know, then he's afraid that he would spend all this time, you know, training me up and, you know, getting me to their level, you know, as, as a, as a combo guy. And then I would say, Hey, 
I'm going to selection now, uh, you know, see. and I was, and I would, and he'd lose me, you know, cause, cause there's a, you know, we'll get into that later, but you know, there's a lot of guys in, in the building that are support guys. They come up there as support guys, medics, combo guys, whatever it is. And, you know, even we've, you know, had some guys that were cooks or, you know, whatever, and they decide, Hey, you know what, I want to go for it. And they go to selection and, you know, if they make it, then, you know, they no longer, you know, they're no longer a sport guy there. They, you know, they made the process and now they're an operator. Right. So he, you know, he was afraid that that may happen. Um, and I, and I totally respected that and said, yeah, you know, let me give it a shot. So, so I did, you know, went through that route, went to selection, made it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad he, you know, kind of pushed me on that route first. Uh, but yeah, made it and, um, was at the unit for about right at like 14 years. And, um, then, you know, ended up retiring out of there, retired out, uh, at 21 years and some change. And, uh, now just enjoying life, probably busier now than I was when I was in, but <laughs> it's all good. It's everything I, I want to do now, you know? Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so, you know, we, we, you touched on selection a little bit now, so I'd like to talk to you about it and, um, you know, wh- what the preparation is like mentally for it. Um, you know, what, what's the right attitude and, and what do you think is needed to succeed at the highest level of special operations or combat arms? Right. It's, uh, it's a great question. Um, and I actually, I, I get asked it a lot. Um, I get a lot of guys that hit me up, you know, on, on Instagram messenger and stuff like that, that are, you know, wanting to take a similar path and, and asking, you know, what can they do? Are they the right person? And, um, you know, it, it's, it's weird. It, there's, a, I mean, there is prep, you know, things that you can do to prep, to get ready. You know, there's obviously a big physical aspect to it, but, and it's a, it's a big mental aspect to it. And that, that's, what's pretty neat, you know, overall about the unit is you walk down the hallway and, you know, there, there's such a wide range of people in that building, um, you know, doing different jobs, but especially as operators, um, you know, it's not, it's not the cookie cutter guy that, most people think, you know, six foot bodybuilder, you know, just go get her hard charger type person. Um, you know, there's a, there's a big range, you know, and I don't fit that mold at all. You know I mean? I'm, I'm five foot nothing. Um, you know, I mean, I, I work out quite a bit. I mean, I stay in shape. You have to, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's different. And there's a lot more guys like me than there are of the big, you know, big muscle head type six foot, six foot plus, uh, guys that you usually see portraying, uh, special ops guys in the movies. Um, not necessarily like that, but as far as prep goes, you know, you, you definitely need to be in great shape. Um, you know, and, and there's, there's things you can do to prep prior to going. And, you know, if you go through the briefing and, you know, you're serious about it to someone out there that that's looking for that path, when you go to the briefing and you talk to the recruiters, you know, they're going to give you everything that you need to succeed. They're going to tell, you know, give you a train up program and everything. Um, and overall the course, you know, selection is, is set up, um, to, you know, to give you every opportunity to succeed. You know, we, we select from everywhere, you know, in the military, any service, any MOS, it doesn't matter. And, you know, we know that, that you're going to get guys showing up there that may not have looked at a map or done land navigation since basic training, you know, um, just different things. So it's a, it's a crawl, walk, run 
um, course. And, you know, it's, it, it really, it, it, it is the, I think it is the best course in the military, just by the way it's run, how professional it's run and, and every, they give you every single tool and they will teach you everything you need to know to be successful, um, in that course. So, you know, you, you'll get everything that you need. You just have to come there with a good attitude. Um, you know, the, be in, you know, be in good shape and, um, you know, don't quit. That's, that's kind of the biggie. Um, there's not really a, a special sauce for, uh, you know, what somebody could give you or information. You could have all the information in the world, but if you're just, if you're not the right person that they're looking for, then, you know, you're not the right person. That's, that's kind of what it comes down to. There's no quota. There's no certain numbers that they need to meet. You know, there's, I think my class, you know, my class started with close to like 130 guys and there was like maybe 20 of us at the end, just selection, you know, that, that ended up making it through. And then, you know, then you go to OTC and then you have, you know, you lose, you lose, you know, guys in OTC. And there's, there's some classes where there might only be one or two guys that graduate that finish because those were, those were the right one or two guys. That's it. I mean, my class, we had eight that finished, um, you know, that was it. And that's kind of a, kind of low, um, you know, but it, it varies every, every class. There's no certain number. It's, you know, it's the right, it's the right guy. They pick the right guy, uh, for the job. So you, so. you spoke about before you kind of touched on, you know, like the, there's a physical aspect and then obviously, uh, it's mental and, and you need the, to be the kind of the right person. But, um, if do you feel like you get to a point where it doesn't matter how good of a shape you're in, you, you have to uh, mentally just be that person? Yeah, oh yeah, big time. Yeah, if you could be in the best shape in the world, and that's only going to get you through the physical parts, but it's the mental piece that breaks people down. Um, you know, it's it's the bits of not knowing, and you know, there's I mean, there's things that obviously I just can't you know can't get into with right. the way selection is set up, but. Um, it will test you mentally. Um, and it's, it, it gets a lot of guys, you know, it's just the, you know, part of it is just the not knowing and it's, and it's unique the way it's set up because it is, it, it's testing you there, but it's making sure that you're the right person. So that downrange when you're off working in a foreign country, you know, on your own doing things that you're comfortable, you can't have a guy that's spazzing out, you know, I mean, take, you know, take scuba school, for instance, you know, you, you do all these elaborate drills underwater where they're, you know, ripping your regulator out, you're, you know, you're blindfolded and, you know, they're tying your hose in a knot. I mean, just these things that are, that are conditioning you to stay calm in those situations, understand that, okay, let me take a couple seconds, undo this mess, and then I'll get air again. And it's, it's the same thing, just kind of, you know, mental process of, being able to work in any environment, you know, whether it's on your own or one other person or being in different situations and being able to calmly think through, um, you know, high risk scenarios and, and get yourself and your mates, you know, through it and, and out of it and have mission success. Yeah. I think that, you know, what you just said, that mentality or that being trained in that way where you just have to take a couple of seconds and, and walk through it versus panicking, I, I think that can kind of trickle down into all aspects of life, if you really think about it. 
Oh yeah, definitely does. I mean, it's, you know, and you see, you know, everybody has those friends that, <laughs> well, you know, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Uh, you know, you're out just having a good time or you're, you know, doing something. And that one dude that's just kind of wigs out about everything and, you know, has anxiety, has, you know, has this, that going on. You're just like, man, I do the best, you know, it's like, yeah, I would not want to be downrange with that guy. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, it, 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 there's a lot of aspects to it overall, you know, just being in special operations, but there's so many different levels of it. You know, I mean, we're talking about the tip of the spear. Um, you know, there's, there, there's a, a ton of awesome, awesome guys in Ranger Battalion, in SF, in the groups, in the SIFs, you know, that, that are, that are great guys. Um, you know, some have tried out, not made it, you know, some never try out. Um, but you know, they're, they're great where they are and those units are, are phenomenal. Um, you know, and, and that's why everybody has, there are different units and everybody has a different mission set, um, you know, for what they do because you have different caliber people in there. That's all. So how long were you in the military before nine eleven? Uh, right about eight years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, uh, yeah, about seven, eight years. So I came in in 93. Um, so yeah, I was, I'm pretty much, I mean, I spent most all my time at range battalion, but once I got to the unit, um, which was in 2000, you know, then I finished up all my stuff there training wise and was operational was, I mean, like a couple months before nine 11 happened. Um, so I, it was a unique time, uh, you know, for me and for, you know, the unit for the world overall, but I mean, I hit it right at the right point. Um, you know, I, my OTC class was the class, you know, we graduated right before nine 11 and, that was it. I mean, we, the only thing that we knew was combat. Um, you know, and I, I mean, that I was fortunate because of that timing and being young, you know, on a team where, I mean, pretty much my whole career, I mean, it was just deployment, deployment, deployment. I mean, I did, I did 14, uh, deployments to combat, uh, over those 14 years that I was there. And that was all with the unit? Okay, so I wanted to ask you, um, since you, you were at Tora Bora, where were you when the towers fell? Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, we were at a JRX in, I think I was in Turkey. Yeah, we were, we were already forward deployed. Um, we were at a JRX, and I remember we were just kind of chilling out, sitting in the tent, um, waiting you know, to get a briefing and, and go, actually we were getting ready to go, you know, do some stuff that night. And one of the guys, you know, had a couple radios that were, you know, just hanging out in the, in the tents. And, um, we heard it come across the radio and, you know, we're like, what the heck is that? You know, obviously like everybody just confused on what, wait, what is going on? You know, some, some local pilot just crashes, you know, his plane. How the heck that happened? And, you know, we kind of gather around, sitting around and, you know, a bunch of us, and then we're sort of listening to, you know, go down. And then, you know, we slid over into the talk and, um, start, you know, looking at the TVs and yeah, it was like, holy cow. I mean, everything just, obviously all the training, everything that was going on just got put on hold. And 
um, we had everything with us. So we were pretty much like, all right, Hey, we're going right from here. You know, where are we going? What, what, you know, what, let's start planning. I mean, where, where's our first target? What are we doing? I mean, we were ready to go. And, um, it really, we, I mean, we ended up sitting there for, I felt like forever, but, um, I think we were there, we were there for at least three days or more till we did anything. Um, trying to figure everything out, figure out the moving pieces. And that, you know, was, was levels above us just um, seeing who was going to go where and what we were doing. But we ended up flying back home. Uh, we ended up flying back home and another, uh, another squadron went in first and then we went in and relieved them. So I, I, I deployed in, I think it was October um, of that year. I deployed, we staged forward and then, um, ended up inserting into Afghanistan and we, we pretty much set up, um, Bagram. So we were kind of some of the first ones there. I mean, I remember initially getting there and us just kind of grabbing some ground, um, which we still own that area now. Um, it's, it's changed immensely, but I mean, I've got some different pictures from when we first got there, just being fields and some rubble buildings and, um, yeah, now it's, I mean, it's elaborate, you know, uh, barracks and all kinds of stuff there now. Cause I, I went back there. I mean, I was there in 01 was for that whole Christmas. We had did a Christmas rotation. So 01, I was there October through sometime January and then went back again, um, there in, in October of the following year. So that was, that was awesome Two Christmas rotations back to back, but that's uh, just kind of the way it worked out. Um, and, and then I was, I think then I, I didn't go back to Afghanistan until 2010 or 11 and ended up making a trip, <clears throat> making a trip back there to see everything. It was just like, wow. I mean, blown away at how much it had grown. And, you know, obviously we had um, expanded our, the little area where we, where we were, but uh, some of it still looked the same. So it was, it was pretty neat to go back there and see it. And when you guys first got there, it it was a, a landing strip, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was a pretty, pretty bad landing strip. It was, it was, you know, had been blown up part way and there was a lot of like old Russian hulks and tanks and, you know, MIGs. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff all over the place yeah, and landmines everywhere. Yeah. Still. R- Russian landmines. Yeah, so it was, it was, treacherous. yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was treacherous. Um, I mean, they had to come in with minesweepers and actually an area that we outside of one of the buildings that we were living in where we had been walking through some dunnage and, you know, different kind of area we were sort of hanging out in during the day as we were figuring everything out. Um, <clears throat> when we left and went to Torbora, they swept that whole area and they ended up finding a couple mines like right in that area. Wow. Luckily, yeah, luckily none of us found them, but yeah, the minesweeper and and the equipment uh, found them all. Yeah, with with the Russians, the mines that the Russians left, and then the Taliban and, and other groups there, you know, planting mm-hmm. IEDs and stuff like that. Afghanistan is the most mined country on the planet. Um, so as yeah. as dangerous as it is to get into gunfights and things like that, it's I think more coalition troops have been killed by by bombs on, in the ground rather uh, actual mm-hmm. gunfights. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't. I yeah. I don't doubt it. I mean, it's it is there. There's a there's a ton of them everywhere throughout that country. Yeah, it's a mess. 
Okay, so I wanted to talk about Tora Bora. Um, so w- were you there in the initial movement in, or did you rotate in there? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, I was. Yeah, I was there through the whole thing, and it it didn't last all that long. I mean, for us specifically, like Tora Bora. Um, I know there's other battles that happened in and around there, um, but the actual like Tora Bora um, piece, you know, and 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 a lot of guys they want more, you know, more details. Um, Dalton Fury, who was um, our troop commander at the time for all of that, he wrote a book on it, right. uh, Killed Bin Laden, and it's uh, if guys haven't read it, you know, and they're interested in it. It's it's there's a lot of details. It's a really good book. Um, but yeah, so I was there initially. What we ended up doing was driving. Um, we drove trucks um, like Hiluxes, you know, Tacomas from Bagram all the way to Jalalabad and then from Jabad south into Tora Bora and up into, um, you know, as far as we could get in Tora Bora. We had to get dropped off at a certain point because it, it was just footpaths from there. Um, yeah, we, we went into that area initially staged, uh, at a local tribal chiefs. Um, we called it the schoolhouse, but his kind of house and building. And, um, yeah, we sort of planned from there and then we actually inserted, um, twice the, the very first time we had to turn around, we got turned around by the press. Mm. Um, you know, it was pretty big for, for the locals and the local tribes, um, especially the guy that was kind of hosting us and provided us a couple guides that there was no U.S. presence there. And um, there was a there was a hill that you could see from where we were, but we called it Press Hill. Right. And um, it was it was littered with media. I mean, 24 um, seven because there was tons of like just different shelling and, you know, different stuff going on at the base of the mountains there in Torbor and a lot of activity because that's where bin Laden was. And, um, yeah, it was littered with press. And the first time that we tried inserting, you know, we were dressed in local garb and just kind of sitting in the back of the pickups and, you know, covered in, you know, some blankets and just sort of trying to blend in. And, um, we had to get through that area in order to get to where we had to go. And, and the first time we went through, we just got mobbed and, uh, we ended up just turning around and coming back. And, um, we inserted again the second time at night. And, you know, we're able to kind of get through there. But there was a couple pictures that leaked out of some guys, um, you know, sitting in the back of those trucks. And, you know, it was like, hey, is this, is this Americans? I mean, yeah, it was it was some media stuff that people had to deal with other than us. But, um, yeah, it was kind of a pain in the butt. The press was the press was a pain in the butt through the insertion. And then when we were coming out of Tora Bora, too. But, um, yeah, we inserted in and, and basically just... Uh, chased bin Laden. You know, we, we heard him on the radios, you know, we knew, we knew the vicinity of his location. We knew where, you know, a bunch of troops were. So it was just continued, um, you know, firefight, uh, you know, not necessarily direct fire, but, you know, calling in munitions just 24 seven on these guys all up in the, you know, this, this huge mountain range and just advancing forward and advancing through those positions and just keep taking ground, taking ground, taking ground. And, um, I mean, we, we had aircraft stacked. I mean, there were times that they were like stacked 10 high. I mean, coming from all over the world to just come in and drop bombs there. Um, I mean, we, we dropped, I can't even tell you how much number wise or poundage wise, but I, it was, 
it was just ungodly. I mean, how much, how much we dropped there and how much we destroyed that place. It was crazy. Um, <clears throat> but what's kind of neat, here's a little backstory. Um, I, I think, I think it's mentioned in the book, but, um, this whole, like, you know, everybody sees this Molon Labe, um, type thing. And it's, it's sort of, I guess with this whole global war, everybody sort of adapted it and uses it and you see it everywhere. Um, but it's, uh, it's kind of personal to me and to us because we, we went into that mountain range and when we showed up at this, uh, this schoolhouse with this tribal chief, he, you know, said to our, our leader, the guy that was, you know, our, uh, to, to Tom, Don Fury, that was working with him, you know, closely in meetings and everything every day. But he's like, where are the rest of your guys? <laughs> and Tom's like, this is it. I mean, it was literally maybe 30 of us, maybe. And, um, and the tribal chiefs laughed at him and he's like, what? He goes, you're going up into those mountains with 30 guys. He goes, there's 30,000 troops up there. And, you know, they know that land that's that they, they built that they have caves that, you know, everything. They, they lived there. They fought the Russians there for years and years and defeated them. You're going to take 30 guys and go up there. He's like, well, I guess I'll be coming up to get your bodies, you know, tomorrow. I mean, he just was, was like, no way you're not doing it. Right. And within, you know, within hours of us being up there, you know, we have intercepted radio transmissions of, of the, all those foreign fighters and, and everybody just like screaming for help and just like, they're all over us. They're, they're, they're killing us left and right. I mean, we just annihilated that place. And it's, um, you know, from that, we, as, you know, as a squadron from that whole battle to Arbora kind of adopted Molan Labe as our squadron motto. Um, cause we were literally just few against thousands and went in and just destroyed them. You know, so it's, it was a pretty neat, you know, piece of that whole Tora Bora battle, you know, that came out of that, um, anyway, little side story, but, um, yeah, it was, it, it was fun. I mean, overall it was, it was, uh, it was grueling, you know, we were climbing. I mean, we got to over 8,000 feet at one point. Um, the weather changed immensely. I mean, we were getting snowed on and we packed fairly light, you know, we, I mean, I had a rucksack on my back and, you know, that was it. And we didn't even have full sleeping bags. Um, you know, we didn't bring much up there and it, and it got to a point where we had to be resupplied. And, um, a lot of guys know who Greg Birch is, but, um, he was our uh, squadron sergeant major at the time, him and a few other guys ended up like walking all the way up to us at almost 8,000 feet. And they made like three trips up and back yeah within within probably an 18 hour window if that and just brought us all supplies like sleeping ended up bringing us sleeping bags bringing us chow water i mean they were humping they were humping some heavy heavy loads yeah. up and down the mountain multiple times to resupply us up there That's yeah, crazy. It, was, it was it was impressive that was one of my first like whoa moments of of Greg Birch. I mean, you know, there were stories and everything and there still are. I mean, he's just an amazing individual, but yeah, that was cause I was still fairly new. You know, I'd only been in squadron now for, you know, five, six months. And yeah, I'm like, I'm like, Holy cow, this dude's hard as woodpecker lips. I mean, no kidding. 
yeah, just amazing individual. So, um, so just a little background on Torbor itself for, for people who might not know exactly what it is. It's a cave complex in the Spingard mountain range in Eastern Afghanistan. So it's right, basically right on the border with Pakistan, right? Before we get back to Caldwell, I would like to talk to you about this week's sponsors for this podcast, all active or retired military. Were you diagnosed with tinnitus or hearing loss after using 3M's dual-ended earplugs? These earplugs were yellow and black or yellow and olive. They were often called Christmas lights. Instead of protecting your hearing, they actually permitted damaging sounds to get through. If you were issued these earplugs while in service and then diagnosed with tinnitus or hearing loss, then call 800-567-8936 because you may qualify for significant cash compensation. Again, if you served in the military and were issued 3M dual-ended yellow and dark earplugs and were later diagnosed with hearing loss or tinnitus, then call 800-567-8936 right now to see if you qualify for cash compensation. 3M knew of the defects but failed to warn anyone about them. A whistleblower lawsuit that 3M quietly settled made the case that 3M manipulated test results to make it appear as if the plugs met government standards, but they didn't. So if you were in the military any time from 2003 through 2015 and are now suffering from diagnosed hearing loss or tinnitus, then please call 800-567-8936 right now. The lawsuit is against 3M and not the government or the military, so your benefits with the VA will not be affected. Here's the phone number one last time so you can get it, 800-567-8936. Our second sponsor for this week's podcast is Keeps. Two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35. The good news, with today's advancements in science, Keeps offers proven treatments that can help combat the symptoms of hair loss. Prevention is key. Keeps treatments really work. They're up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. So act fast. Many men even experience hair regrowth with Keeps treatments. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors and nearly 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just $10 a month, plus for a limited time, you can get your first month free. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, Go to Keeps.com slash Global Recon to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Global Recon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It, it borders uh, borders right on Pakistan. It's, I mean, it is hollowed ground. I mean, that's where, you know, that's where they fought the Russians off for years up in that mountain range. And they've got, you know, lots of different, you know, caves. And, you know, I mean, they were, they were smart. Um, I mean, some of the caves, the way that they would camouflage and the way they would cut limbs down for camouflage, you know, they, they did everything pretty meticulous. You could tell that, you know, there's survivors up there and, and they've been through it before, you know, as we would, as we would advance through and, and, you know, take some of that ground, you'd see some of these caves and the, even the way that they'd have their stoves in there, you know, to cook and the way that they would put, you know, push the heat out, um, and have it covered. So it wasn't given off signature. I, there was a lot of thought that went into some of that stuff. It kind of blew me away. Um, but it, yeah, it was, it was some treacherous terrain. Um, I mean, there were, there was quite a few times that I'm walking on some paths that, I mean, if you slipped and fell, you were falling to your death. I mean, just thousands of feet straight down. Um, yeah, it was, there were some hairy, there were some hairy stuff up there for sure. Yeah. 
And then, so you guys were up there, and, and like you had mentioned before in, in Dalton Fury's book, uh, he goes into a great detail on a lot of this. Um, but you, how long were you guys there? Was it a couple of weeks or less than that? Yeah, it was at the most two, I think it was less than two weeks. Uh, it was less than two weeks that we were actually up there from the time, from the time that we inserted. Um, I don't remember the exact date when we kind of, when we left um, Bagram, but we left there. I mean, it was a couple days, you know, we had to drive, which we did the drive in one day all the way to JBAD. And that was, that was horrendous. Just the, you know, figure uh, the, you know, the, the roads weren't necessarily roads. Um, they were, they were nasty just trying to navigate our way all the way there. Um, took a, took a full day and then we overnighted and, you know, then we moved our way to the schoolhouse at the base of the mountains and spent a few days there and, you know, then getting into the mountains and then actually up in the mountains and fighting and, uh, and then, you know, the process of coming back out too. So yeah, it was, it was, uh, I mean, overall, I think it was over two weeks total, but actually up in the mountains and everything was, was, was a little less than that. So ultimately, um, you guys basically had them on the run. I, b- I believe a lot of them did end up surrendering. Um, a lot were killed, and then other people just fled, uh, which I think most people assume into uh, Pakistan, uh, including Bin Laden. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, he snuck out that that backside, um, and it's you know it's it's all in the book, but it's I mean it was basically. Um, yeah, we, you know, we were bombing the crap out of them. Uh, we, Bin Laden was injured. We had, we had hit him, you know, with some stuff and, um, they, you know, uh, they got smart and they basically said, Hey, you know, they came across the radios and, and said, Hey, if you, you know, give us a, I think they wanted like a, so many hour window of, you know, just ceasefire. And they were going to send, you know, like 3000 troops down through the Valley that were going to, you know, surrender and blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, we were, <laughs> we there on the ground, were like, hell no, you know, uh-uh. right. we're going to continue this fight because we're kicking your ass, but higher above us. So I don't even know how high it ended up going, but they're like, okay, you know, they got two hours, I think it was that they gave them. So we stopped everything. And, you know, of course, at still at one hour and 59 minutes at that point, we had maybe seen like 10 dudes that came down through. Um, and right at that two hour mark, it was like, you, this is me fire mission over and just started annihilating them again. But in that window, it was a bunch that, you know, including bin Laden that just snuck out the backside into Pakistan. Right. And and I think, wasn't it the, um, the Afghan warlord who agreed to that? I think if I remember correctly, uh, there was, well, there was multiple. So in that area, you know, we worked with one particular warlord tribal chief, but there were others in that area, um, you know, and the, they had always had intermingled, you know, fighting between the different warlords in that area. Um, so I, I believe it was one of the other warlords that, you know, and, and for those guys, it was all about who paid them more money. That was right. really it. I mean, you, you know, we came in and we paid, you know, we found one that we thought was trusted. We paid him a ton of money. Uh, to get what we needed. But if, you know, the Taliban had come in behind us and paid them more money, that dude would have slit our throats in our sleep. You know, I mean, they, they didn't care. They had no loyalties to anybody. It was all about money and what you were giving them. That was it. 
Right. And I, I think a lot of people on the outside looking in don't understand how some of the, the dynamics of that environment work. Yeah, it's, I mean, that, that sums it up. And it's, and it's because, you know, if you think about it, you know, they have nothing, you know, they're, they're dirt farmers out there. You know, they live off the land, they have whatever land they have. And, you know, the smarter ones rise to the top, become tribal chiefs, warlords, um, you know, and, and control an area and have a bunch of minions underneath them. And, you know, they beg, borrow and steal for everything they got. When somebody comes in, you know, with a heavy pocket and they just see, okay, I can make my life and my living better. Sure. What do you want? You know, I'll do whatever you want. That's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the old, I mean, wild, wild west, you know, I mean, it's, it's every man for himself out there. Right. Okay. I also wanted to talk to you about uh, leadership, uh, good leadership versus bad leadership. Um, I'm sure it's something that you've seen uh, throughout your career. Uh, can you give examples of both? Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> I mean, obviously I was, I would say for, you know, very fortunate. I mean, I, I worked for everything I had to get where I was, but, you know, coming in initially to Ranger Battalion, uh, you know, you're already coming in with guys that have volunteered numerous times to be there. So they want to be there. Um, you know, so there's, you know, great leadership throughout, you know, Ranger Battalion. I had, you know, I had some great, um, people immediately above me, you know, E5s that, that, um, you know, would push me and, and mentor me and, you know, all the way up to, I mean, I remember, you know, some great, even company commanders, um, you know, that were good. And, um, you know, not, I, you know, I, I really been fortunate cause I haven't, I haven't been in, you know, or, uh, seen too much, you know, bad leadership. I mean, okay. you get a guy here and there, right. um, everywhere, but you know, I, I hate to say it, you know, but you see a lot of that in the bigger army, um, and you know, some of those places where you get guys that don't really want to be there, um, you know, being in Ranger Battalion and then again, then going to the unit, I mean, everybody wants to be there. And if you're not cutting the mustard, I mean, you're gone, you know, that's, that's the nice thing about, you know, even Ranger Battalion is, you know, they'll, we call it RFS, but you know, you release relief for standards. If you're not, if you're not meeting the standards, um, and you're not pulling your weight, then see ya. You know, right. needs of the army, you're, you're gone. And there were, you know, there was a, there was a lot of people I saw that, you know, that got released. We had a whole, basically a whole platoon, um, in the headquarters company that was the RFS platoon that, you know, once they didn't meet the standards either, whether it was PT standards or, you know, just, um, you know, just personal things that they were gone. They, they pulled them out of there just so they wouldn't, you know, contaminate anybody else. They were put in their own platoon and, you know, they did their own thing until their orders came to, to go elsewhere. But, um, you know, as far as just good examples, you know, I, I can recall, you know, prior to me being a team leader, um, you know, at the unit, uh, you know, had other team leaders that were there. I mean, the team leader that I worked under was, was a great dude. Um, you know, one of the other team leaders that I was in a troop together with was a great guy. And, you know, I remember going into planning sessions with them and watching the way that they would break down like a target, you know, we, we'd get imagery and, you know, most of the time when we're overseas, you get handed information and it's like, okay, here you go. It's the first time you're seeing it, you know, cause this guy just went to this location. We know he's here. So boom, here's the setup. Here's the location. We're out of the door, you know, we're leaving in less than 30 minutes. So, 
what are we doing? And, you know, to watch these guys break this down and just say, okay, you know, Hey, a team, you're going here, B team here, C team here. I need an aircraft to land here, here, here. You know, we have the, the pilots in there and they'd go, yep, I can put one there. Yep. I can put one there, or I can't put one there, but I can put it here. Or, you know, we could fast rope there. I mean, just, just knowing everything and the experience and watching them break it down um, was, was amazing to me. You know, I mean, I was like, that's what I want to be like, you know, and I, and I would go into every one of those sessions and, and just learn, you know, from them. And then, you know, I felt like once I made that jump and then, you know, became a team leader that, you know, that was my strong suit was we would get, you know, we'd get a target and it was like, okay. And I'd jump right up there and go, okay, boom, boom, boom. Here's what I want. You know, I need guys here, here, this and that. And pilots, you know, would give me that okay or not, whether they could put them there. And that was it. We were out the door. Um, you know, I, I wasn't big on planning. I, I didn't like it uh, to sit and do any type of elaborate plan because it was always going to change when you hit the ground. So uh, all I needed to know was where the, where the aircraft could put me and then which team had, you know, which entryway, and that's it. We'll figure it out. You know, when we get there and adjust as, as, you know, as we hit the ground and we see it, but you know, those guys, those guys were immediate, um, you know, great example, you know, leadership examples for me was just the way that they did that. Um, and then every, you know, everybody else in that building is, is just amazing. You know, you've got guys that, you know, that are Excel at, you know, shooting, whether, you know, some guys are just, Hey, these dudes, I mean, this guy, this guy, they're amazing pistol shooters. You know, these guys are awesome at, you know, O course, these guys are awesome rifle shooters. These guys are great at hand to hand. You always had certain guys that were just, you know, the top at those little things. And, you know, I would try to, you know, spend time with them, you know, just, just, Hey, you know, what are you doing today? Hey dude, let's go to the range. Let's go shoot, you know, go shoot with those guys or go run the O course with this guy and he'll teach me his little tricks on, you know, why he's, faster than everybody else, you know, how he's breaking down the obstacles and, you know, all these little things. So it's, it's neat. Um, you know, advice wise, you know, for, for different listeners out there, you know, I'm sure everybody's seen it and it, you know, may not be military, you know, maybe you're a, you know, you're a cook at a restaurant and, you know, you're a, you're a fry cook, but you want to do more. And, you know, you've got this guy, that's the, you know, that's the grill dude. And he's awesome on the grill. I mean, put in the time and, and go, pick his brain, you know, go work a shift with him on the grill. You know I mean? Just, just let him mentor you. So everybody knows and sees examples of other people in their life that are great leaders or great at something. And, you know, my advice would just be, you know, go after that. I mean, he's great at something because he puts in the time and the effort, you know, he has tricks and techniques to make him better. So go learn what those are you know, go spend time with that person and, and be better, you know, at that skill, you know, and, and, and make yourself well-rounded by doing that with a bunch of other people, um, just to be better, you know, at a lot of stuff. So looking at the, the previous 18 years of war in Afghanistan, which you were, you were there at the beginning of it, um, and elsewhere, you know, there are positives from the experiences, uh, from a military perspective, uh, you know, we're talking about medicine and, and the improvement there. Uh, there are a record number of troops surviving wounds from the battlefield that previously these type of wounds were not survivable. Um, so that's a good thing. And then the, um, the, the skill set and ability of guys like yourself uh, who are constantly deploying and, and 
learning how to fight better and things like that and how to think through problems and stuff like that. So those are positives. Um, now I wanted to ask you from a personal perspective and from a bigger picture perspective, do you think it's been worth it? Oh yeah, it's been, I mean, huge. Just, just, you know, you touched on a medical piece of it and you know, what I saw from, you know, pre-war and being in Ranger Battalion, um, you know, everybody, it was like everybody had a job and you focused on being the best at your job, but we didn't do much cross training. Um, when I got to the unit cross training was like, you know, no, everybody needs to know, you know, a lot more than just whatever your job is, you know, especially because, you know, as a, as an assaulter, you know, or an operator on a team, you, every team is different. You have certain little, uh, you know, like I was on a water team for a while, then I was on a mobility team for a while. Um, so we have a team task, but then inside the team, you know, you've got your team leader into IC and then, you know, you're going to have somebody that designated as a breacher. Somebody's gonna be a team medic team combo guy, but it's just an additional duty. You know, obviously if you get a guy that was an 18 Delta, um, prior to, then it just makes sense for him to be the, the team medic, but everybody, is a team medic. I mean, everybody learns, you know, our medics, they do a lot of training. I mean, our medics are unbelievable. And, um, we do a lot of training with them individually as groups, a lot of different scenarios. Um, and everybody becomes a medic. Um, you know, the combo stuff, I mean, yeah, I, you know, came from a combo background, but you know, when I got there now, you know, I was an operator, so I wasn't, doing any combo stuff, but it just made sense for me to be the team combo guy. You know, what did that mean? Really? It didn't mean much. I mean, now I just took our team radios to the combo guy and said, Hey, combo guy, fill my stuff, <laughs> which, which they hated. No, 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 no. We, we got along great. Cause I, you know, I would keep up on a lot of it. Um, and, and it actually it ended up, uh, you know, working in my favor back up a little bit, but you know, one of the times that we were in Afghanistan, uh, we got tasked. We had to go get some some information or something from uh, from a uh, SF team that was out uh, in like I think they were they were near Jalalabad or something. Well, my team leader was going out there, but he I had to go with him because we had to set up like a fairly elaborate communication system, you know, satellite communications, just doing some different stuff, shooting messages back and data, and you know, obviously nobody else on the team knew how to do that. I'm like, yeah, I can do that. That's easy. So, you know, here me as a new guy on the team, I got to go out, you know, with just my team leader on, you know, on a little side mission, just him and I, just because of the skill set that I brought. But, um, you know, the, the advancements that we've seen um, because of this, you know, the long war and everything is just amazing. Um, I think it's been nothing but a plus, you know, for the military overall, for the, you know, for the United States. I mean, technology advances that we've had, um, you know, in equipment, you know, for the military that has trickled over to the civilian world, um, the advancements in weaponry, the advancements in optics, um, you know, the communication stuff, the medical stuff, you know, is, is huge. You know, like I said, and you touched on the number of lives now that are being saved on the battlefield is, is huge compared to previous wars. And that's because, not only because of the technology advancements, but because of all the cross training that everybody's doing, you know, everybody's learning how to treat wounds. Right. Um, so that immediate trauma, which, you know, if you look at the statistics on, 
you know, a guy getting injured in the bat, you know, in battle on the battlefield, that first like 30 minutes is the most critical time and being able to do the right treatment right away, you know, on somebody is the difference maker for the next 24 hours, you know, of his life. Right. So yeah, being able to, to have everything that we've got now and all the cross training, it's, yeah, it's huge. I mean, absolutely huge and, and, a, and a major benefit for us. Um, yeah. And then even, and, and there's several books out there about it and I, I don't know how much you can talk about it, but uh, particularly in Iraq and particularly with the unit, um, the, the, um, once they had like, uh, cell phone towers set up and people were using phones in Iraq, then there was more intelligence and you need intelligence to, to hit targets and stuff like that. Um, and then there was just, um, uh, what's been described as like a like blazing fast, uh, cycle of getting information, hitting targets, getting people and basically breaking up these terrorist networks before they can rebuild. And that's, that's something that's been attributed to the unit and obviously uh, a lot of support personnel as well. Um, and, and you were, you were a part of some of that. Oh yeah. I mean, I saw, you know, I saw a lot of changes in technology from the beginning. I mean, in the very beginning, it was, it was all human, you know, human intelligence. So we were relying on sources and, you know, people that walked in and, you know, gave information Now, obviously they didn't just walk into us, but, you know, we, we had our own network. Um, you know, we had people that were out, you know, running sources and you tap into, um, you know, other government agencies that we work with, um, to get Intel, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was slow in the beginning, but then once, you know, all the technology advancements go and, you know, we're, you know, getting more drones and, you know, predators and all that stuff where now we're, you know, our, our camera footage and being able to watch targets, you know, continually, um, you know, days and weeks at a time and in individuals and see them moving around and know where they are. I mean, it's all this stuff, you know, you see a lot of it in the movies now, but, I mean, that, yeah, that stuff was, was huge for us to be able to, to be, you know, 100% accurate on who we were going after, that that was the person where exactly they were and, you know, to be able to hit there because, you know, early on a lot of dry holes we hit, you know, dry hole being, you know, you, you think that the person is there, you go to that house and nobody's home, you know, versus, Hey, that dude's there. We know he's there. We saw him walk into his house. He's still in his house. Nobody's left. Boom. We go there. He's there. We got him. You know, we're done. So it's, um, yeah, technology aspect for targeting has, has been huge, really big. And, and throughout your career, particularly in combat, did you have a lot of experience working with other units, um, or even allied nation militaries? Yeah, we would, um, I would say probably the the most we worked with was the SAS. Um, right. the, and those dudes, I, I absolutely love them. Um, I mean, I, I worked with them quite a bit through my career and built some good relationship with those guys. I still keep in contact with a, with a chunk of them. Um, and it's, yeah, they are, they are phenomenal. Uh, I mean, our unit was, was based off of their model and, and, and them, and, um, you know, they, the, the, the only difference between us and them is technology, really. You know, we, because of the advancements in the United States with night vision tubes and lasers and different stuff, you know, we've, we've got some better companies here, um, than they have access to. And it's just goes into, you know, different international trade 
regulations and things, but you know, our equipment, our equipment overall is, is a, is better than theirs. Um, but as far as people go and, and actual, you know, soldiering and, and troops, I mean, they are, they are awesome. They are unbelievable. Yeah, they are. They are, um, great guys to work with for sure. So now I would like to talk about uh, your transition out of the military, um, how it was for you. Um, we can talk about one minute out and, and that's a company that you run. Um, mm-hmm. so can we talk about some of that? Yeah. Um, so I got out December 14 and, um, you know, after 21 years and obviously, you know, 14 years of that pretty much being, you know, combat, um, you know, I, I wanted to just walk away from it all. Um, okay. You know, I needed, I needed a break. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've always been into fishing since I was a kid. You know, I grew up fishing, um, enjoyed it when I got stationed in Savannah, Georgia. Um, I really got into bass fishing and then started doing competitive bass fishing with tournaments and everything. And, um, and it kept growing and my passion for it kept growing and growing. Um, it, you know, obviously it, it got hard to compete, uh, between all the deployments and everything, but I still made it work. And I actually saw this as a possible retirement plan. Okay. Um, and that was, that was my plan. I mean, when I was getting ready, getting close to retirement, I mean, I, I started professionally bass fishing. So sponsors, you know, boat sponsor, motor, electronics, rods, real, everything, um, truck and boat wrap. Uh, I mean, I was fishing at a professional level, um, you know, my last couple of years while I was still in, um, and, and I pretty much walked, you know, when I retired out of the military, I went straight, you know, full time, um, professional bass fishing and saltwater. Um, I competed with the Under Armour fishing team. Under Armour was a big sponsor of mine for years. And, um, I competed on the Under Armour fishing team on the King Mackerel side. Uh, we did the Mercury Pro Trail and the FKA stuff, but I mean, we, we won a bunch and, um, you know, did real well. And, you know, and I was doing well on the bass side and, um, and I still do, I, I don't saltwater fish, uh, competitively anymore. It just got to be a lot. I mean, I was traveling a lot between doing the both. Um, so I, I do, I still bass fish. Um, I still competitively bass fish still, you know, run around with my boat wrapped and, um, you know, I've got, which is pretty cool. Cause you know, with the contacts and everything I've made, um, you know, in the military, I've, I've got some really good companies that back me, um, you know, on the fishing side. Nice. Uh, so like, you know, black rifle coffee company, um, a lot of people, a lot of people know who they are. Right. Uh, but you know, they're a big sponsor of mine, multicam, uh, sponsor of mine, CNG holsters. Um, you know, they're a sponsor of mine. So bring in some of that, you know, tactical, uh, industry Oakley, you know, everybody knows Oakley standard issue, that type of stuff, you know, they, they take care of me. Um, so I've built some good relationships, uh, to do that, but I also, um, you just can't get away from it. You know, the whole tactical piece. Um, I, I work with a company called core survival. Uh, we do some helmet strobe lights. So making some tactical strobes and we do some other different lighting stuff for like jumping, um, for DZ, uh, set up. Uh, so I work with them and then kind of through that, you know, being at some of the different shows, meeting, meeting a lot of SWAT guys, um, and, and just 
their need for training, you know, conversations would, would go to, you know, yeah, we, you know, we, we need to get some training. They don't, you know, they just don't have it. They don't have the budget for it a lot of times or the ammo, but, um, you know, the guys want it and need it. Uh, and then the more guys I ran into SWAT teams that have night vision or looking to get night vision and just have no idea how to use it. That's sort of where, um, you know, some of this came from with, you know, with my company was one minute out. Um, I started, I started one minute out, um, as, as a, as a few things, I guess. Um, it was a message, you know, initially that I wanted to push, um, you know, one minute out is kind of about, you know, living like you're one minute out. Um, you know, when, when we're inserting in on target and you're one minute out from target, you get that one minute call, you know, that's kind of when you flip the switch, you know, we're smoking and joking up to that point on the aircraft, you know, going in on target. Um, but at one minute, you know, everybody kind of flips that switch, you know, you're firing at a hundred percent, you know, your senses are up. I mean, you're just, you're ready to go, right. You, you are at your prime. Um, and, you know, just trying to tell that message with, you know, with one minute out is, you know, live like you're one minute out that, that point, um, you know, be like that all the time, you know, be, be at a hundred percent, you know, be on your game, all your senses firing, be aware of your surrounding, you know, the whole thing. Um, so starting one minute out, um, you know, I sort of given that message and, you know, it, it's my tactical company also. So now, you know, I'm, I'm doing tactical training, uh, do, you know, some rifle pistol stuff. And, you know, the big part of it is night vision training. Uh, I run multiple NVG courses throughout the country um, every year. And, and it's all, it's all been closed courses for government and LE only. Uh, I've got a course coming up in November in, um, Dallas, that is going to be an open enrollment. Uh, so civilians can come. Um, it's, you know, there, there's a little bit of a vetting process. I mean, I'm not just, you know, we're not going to allow just any Joe that's, that's right off the street. Um, you know, we'll talk to you a little bit, figure out what, you know, what you've been through courses already. Um, you know, and you got to have your own equipment. I don't, I don't have anything to rent, um, at this point, but the goal is to, you know, to get a, a bunch of my own equipment. So guys can just show up and, and go through the course, um, you know, and rent the equipment too. But, um, yeah, November in Dallas will be the, will be the first open enrollment, uh, NBG course that I'll be teaching, but we go through, um, you know, a little bit of, of PowerPoint, just kind of teaching guys what night vision is, uh, you know, and then we go through the equipment, everybody's equipment, make sure that they're, you know, they know how to use it functions, um, you know, they're comfortable with it and we'll go out on the range in the day and do some different rifle and pistol drills, just make sure everybody's comfortable. And, you know, uh, I'm good that everybody's, you know, knows how to handle their weapons and, and is familiar with all their stuff before we go and roll into the night, you know, and then we'll go through the night stuff and we'll do, you know, some, some night vision work, rifle, pistol, we'll do, you know, white light stuff with rifle and pistol, uh, just different transitions, um, you know, and depending on the venue, if they have a shoot house, you know, we'll get into a little bit of, of some room clearing type stuff, uh, under nods. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, I've been doing it for a couple of years now and, and had some, some really good feedback from it and it, it's fun to do, uh, for sure. And, and we'll see, hopefully it'll, it'll continue to grow and expand, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of been my transition out is, is, uh, running one minute out working for core survival and uh and doing the professional bass fishing gig and um 
Yeah, it's 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 not bad. I'm not complaining. I'm I had a great career and now I'm out um busy, but you know, doing doing what I want to do, doing what I love and and uh and having fun. So if there's anyone listening either law enforcement or civilians and they're interested in maybe taking a course or or getting in contact with you, where can they do that? Yeah, you can go to uh oneminuteout.com, so the number 1 uh, one minute out.com is my website. I've got some swag stuff on there too, some shirts and patches and stickers and stuff. Uh, but the course information is on there, uh, under training courses. Uh, you can hit me up on my social media. Instagram is probably the best. Um, you can message me on there and I can send you, you know, info to where to find the stuff. Uh, or some of the course information is also on, uh, emerging tactical solutions.com. So Pat Hickox is a guy that I, I hooked up with, um, a couple years ago through core survival. He's a, uh, prior military, uh, law enforcement, and he's, he's been running NBG courses, uh, for quite a few years now, uh, all around the country. So him and I partner up on, uh, on a handful of courses throughout the year. Uh, and he'll have all the different stuff and information on his site. Plus he's got a lot of gear. So if guys are looking for night vision, you know, looking for strobes, like if they're looking to buy one of the core survival Hellstar strobes, they can get that stuff on his website. Um, yeah, nods and lasers, uh, all, all kinds of different stuff, weapon sites and lights. Uh, he carries it all, uh, sort of a one-stop shop there, but that's emerging tactical solutions.com. Awesome. Awesome. So it, it was great to actually uh, get to speak to you and, and sit down and do this and, and walk through some of your career a little bit. Um, I know the audience yeah, is going to appreciate it. Um, and uh, again, for people who are interested in uh, getting a, a fuller picture of Tor Bora, they can pick up Dalton Fury's book, uh, Kill Bin Laden. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, like I said, it was great to talk to you. And I just want to thank you for doing this and thank you for your service as well. Yeah. Thanks, John. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, glad we got to we got to put it together. And uh, yeah, man, I hope guys hope guys like it. And uh, definitely reach out to me. Hit me up on social media. And uh, even if you, you know, listen to the podcast, just hit me up. Tell me that you heard it. And um, yeah, hopefully we do it again soon.
Thank mm-hmm. you.